Welcome to Connecting Citizens to Science, a podcast from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine about engaging communities in global health research. I'm Kim Ozano. And I'm B. Eggard, and throughout this series, we'll be talking to researchers from around the world, exploring how they connect with people to address a range of challenges in global health. Hello, and welcome to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. This is the first episode of our second series, where we'll be looking at engaging communities in vector-borne disease control and research. Vector-borne diseases like malaria, dengue and leishmaniasis are a big and a major burden on global health and development worldwide. Um, more than 80% of the world's population live in an area at risk of one or more vector-borne diseases and over 700,000 deaths are caused by vector-borne diseases every year. As such, there's a real push to identify effective effect control interventions for controlling these diseases. And in this series, we're going to explore how different stakeholders can be engaged in this process and why this is important for creating sustainable and positive change. My name's Bea Eggett, and I'm a PhD student at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. I'll be co-hosting this series with my colleague Fatou Jaite from the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Antwerp in Belgium. Fatou, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you, Bea. Um, I'm happy to co-host this series with you. Um, like you said, um, my name is Fatou. Um, I work as a social scientist at the Institute of Tropical Medicine here in Antwerp, Belgium. Um, my background, uh, I look at mostly the acceptability and the effectiveness of uh, malaria interventions, particularly in the context of elimination, including the use of community participatory strategies. Um, currently, I work together with Bia uh, on a project that looks at the invasion of a novel uh, vector in the Horn of Africa, which is Anopheles Stephansi. So we're leading the social science work package in a very uh, transdisciplinary research project, wherein we look at more those social and ecological factors uh, that contribute to the transmission of the vector, um, including looking at um, the development of multi-sectorial vector control strategies, which also includes a lot of um, participatory strategies. Uh, so with that being said, um, I think along this podcast, you realize that there's a lot of kind of synergy and intersections with the work that we do, including those of the speakers that we have today. So I'll let Bia introduce our two uh, speakers. Thanks, Fatu. So we're really lucky today to be joined by April Monroe and Danielle Piccinini-Black from the Johns Hopkins Center for Communications Programs in Baltimore in the U.S. April is technical lead of malaria at the center and Daniel is design innovation lead as well as academic lead for innovation and human centered design at the Johns Hopkins Kerry Business School. In this episode, we'll be talking to our guests about social and behavioral considerations for vet control and about how human centered design approaches can be used to develop vet control solutions that directly meet the needs of target users. Thank you so much for joining us today, April and Danielle. Thank you for having us. Great. Um, so to get started and to sort of set the scene for our listeners today, um, would you be able to give us a brief overview of the kinds of projects that you work on and the context that you work in? If I can direct this one to April first, please. Sure. Thanks so much and happy to be here. Um, a lot of my work focuses on working with communities that are affected by malaria, mostly working in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and as that relates to vector control, this takes a couple of different forms. So it could be uh, looking at our existing tools and how do we get the most out of those. So things like insecticide-treated bed nets or indoor residual spraying, 
what are the barriers or motivators for use? What are the contexts for use across different settings? Also identifying gaps. So we know that our current tools aren't able to protect people all of the times when they need to be protected. So when and where are people at risk and what groups might need some um, additional attention? And then finally, developing new vector control strategies and tools. So really making sure that when we are developing, evaluating, and testing some of these new technologies or solutions, that we're really bringing in the voices of affected communities from, from early stages and figuring out what it would take for those tools to be successful. Thanks so much, April. Thank you. And Danielle, could we hear a bit from you about the kinds of projects and context that you're working in? Yes. Um, so in my role as the design innovation lead at the Johns Hopkins Center for Communication Programs, I actually have the pleasure of working on a variety of projects in different health areas and in different countries. So um, I've been working recently primarily in Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, and the U.S. and on projects related to nutrition, family planning, and malaria. And of course, malaria is my love. So we do I do a lot of malaria work. Um, primarily in the malaria space, I focus on using human-centered design or design thinking, which is a creative approach to problem solving. I use that to help come up with new interventions, new programs, and new tools directly with the end users or the target audience. Great. That sounds that sounds awesome. Um, and some really nice um, complementary themes in both of your work coming out already. Um, so another quite general question to start us off. Why do you think it's important to connect with affected communities in your work? Danielle, can we hear from you? Yeah. So in human-centered design, we place a really strong emphasis on designing solutions, interventions, tools, hand-in-hand hand with the people that we're designing for. So this is extremely important um, because we believe that using human-centered design, this empathetic design approach, um, really helps us to come up with interventions that are rooted in the needs, the desires, the constraints of those we're designing for, how they see them. And that's a really important piece. So instead of us designing externally and then coming in with some really great research-informed solutions or ideas and then bringing them to our target audiences to see um, how they work, we actually start working with them from the very beginning. And this is really awesome because not only does it help us to create solutions that are going to meet the, uh, meet everyone's needs again, how they see them, but it also helps to increase buy-in for those solutions. So we find that, again, engaging them from the beginning, we get them to really believe in the process. We get them to really feel that they are our partners in designing the solutions for them. And then by, inc by increasing that buy-in, we find that the solutions have a greater uptake. That's a great answer. Um, and I think it's a really interesting um that you said about the sort of empathetic approach that you use. I wondered if you could expand on that a little bit and just tell us sort of what that means. I appreciate that question because as I was speaking, I was like, maybe I should talk a little bit about human-centered design first. So yeah, let me just give a little bit of background on what human-centered design is and the, the process that I use. So human-centered design is really this framework or mindset that emphasizes the human perspective. 
So thinking about human-centered design is this really great empathetic mindset. Design thinking is a problem-solving process that leverages that mindset or that framework to achieve innovation. And design thinking, the process that I use in my work is informed by the Stanford Design School. And it's a five-step process that starts with empathy. It starts with spending a lot of time learning about who your end user is, who the related stakeholders are, how they um, interact with each other, their power dynamics, all of that. And you use that information as the basis for problem solving. So starting with that and weaving that in from you know start to finish. So at the end, you're coming up with these solutions that have that wonderful foundation and empathy and again, that you can pull through from, you know, very beginning of problem identification all the way to solution um, identification. Great. Thanks so much. And I think, yeah, we're going to ask much more about the sort of details of how you apply this approach in practice a little later on the podcast. So thanks so much for that. Um, April, could you tell us a bit about why you think it's important to connect with affected communities in your work? Yeah, absolutely. I want to echo uh, Danielle's points. I think those are, are really important. And also to come back to something that Thatu said in the beginning, which is really the importance of multidisciplinary approaches. Um, and of course, it's essential to evaluate the efficacy of new tools, for example, but it's equally important to make sure that those new tools are going to be used because no matter how efficacious a new tool is, if people don't use it regularly or don't accept it, or if it doesn't fit into their lifestyles, it's really not going to have the intended impact. Um, so I think that's incredibly important. Um, and another point, just to build off of, of what Danielle said, um, is really thinking about um, how we integrate some of these traditional research methods into the, the design thinking approach. And I think there are a lot of great opportunities there as well. So to really bring together these different types of data um, and engage people throughout that process. Great. So I'm going to pass over to Fatu now, who's going to ask you a little bit more about those those practicalities of the approaches that you use. Thank you. Um, I'm sure you uh, listeners will be very much interested in actual, like, in terms of the practical approaches uh, that you use in the applications of your work. Um, so I'll just ask uh, several questions uh, pertaining to this. Um, I think um, it will be interesting to kind of know the methods or approaches that you use. And if you could describe uh, maybe perhaps you a particular uh, example of a project that you've been involved in, wherein you've applied um, any of these methods. Um, perhaps I will start uh, with Danielle, um, if you could tell us a little bit, because you've already mentioned human-centered design um, and teased in a little bit more of the approach. So if you can elaborate that uh, in terms of um, the projects that you've applied it in. Yeah, thank you for the question. So, yeah, while I've already described kind of what human-centered design and what design thinking are, um, let's see if I can bring it to life a little bit with a project example. Um, so one of my absolute favorite projects that I've ever worked on, and April's heard me talk about this one many times, is the Private Sector Malaria Prevention Project, which was a UK aid-funded project that I did in Ghana starting in 2016. And this project, the goal of the project was to catalyze a commercial market for LLIM. 
And um, as part of this project, you know, we were thinking about the landscape of malaria prevention in Ghana. And, you know, the one thing that kept sticking in my head was how are we going to get people to buy a product that they have gotten for free forever? Like, this just doesn't make sense to me. Um, so what I decided to do was think about opportunities for designing new mosquito nets for market. And I thought this was a really wonderful opportunity to do this because, you know, we found that, you know, I guess, you know, data will show that, you know, if you give a, a person a net, they will most likely use it. But there are quite a few folks who don't use nets for various reasons. And we found that some of those reasons are because of the design, right? The design doesn't work for their lifestyle. So here I thought this would be a really good opportunity to look at designing nets that better suit the lifestyles of those in um, in Ghana. So what we did is we decided to use a human-centered design approach to design new nets for market. So what this looked like was it, well, kind of going, you know, what going back to what April said about looking at complementary qualitative research methods and putting them all together. And this project is a prime example of that, but not only with, um, you know, using qualitative research, but also quantitative research. We designed a large comprehensive market research study. And as part of that market research study, we infused human-centered design to work directly with target audiences to design these new nets. So we did this first by having conversations with folks to learn about their facilitators um, and barriers to net use, getting a comprehensive understanding of what that is directly from them. And then we worked hand in hand to design different net prototypes or um, kind of rough draft models, if you will, of different net designs. And then we worked with end users to test those designs, to get their feedback on those designs. And then we iterated on them. We took that feedback. We updated the designs based off the feedback multiple times before we finally landed on um, some net designs that we were able to get manufactured and then put on the shelves in Ghana. And we, one of the wonderful complementary research um, pieces that we did for this was a willingness to pay study. So kind of to look at, you know, we're like, all right, human-centered design is great. We're hearing directly from folks what they want, but let's look at, you know, will they put their money where their mouth is, right? So how much are they actually willing to pay for these things that they want? Um, and it was really a fantastic because we found that, in fact, people were very much willing to pay for those net attributes that they co-designed with us. So just an example of how we used design thinking, human-centered design to design new nets for our market in Ghana. Thank you. That's uh, very interesting. I think it's a good example of showing how you can fit in an intervention, uh, which is kind of tailored uh, to the needs of the those that you're targeting, right? Um, it also, I think in the approach, what comes up for me, it's also this very sort of, not just the use of different uh, qualitative methods, but also the iterative approach to the work that you do uh, and the process of involving the different stakeholders that you've kind of mapped out uh, that are relevant. So that's quite interesting. And um, I'll give it to April in terms of if you want to talk a little bit more about uh, maybe a particular project that you've worked on in terms of how you engage the communities and the methods that you use? Sure. Maybe I'll start with a couple of, I think, important entry points for thinking about 
um, working with communities or community community engagement from the research perspective. And I think it's really critical to think about it as early as possible and as often as possible um, when you're thinking about research, especially. Um, and that's not just affected communities where you're carrying out your research. It's having effective partnerships with ministries of health or national malaria control programs. Uh, it's making sure that uh, the researchers who are collecting data and analyzing data are intimately knowledgeable about the context and are able to be respectful and understanding and um, really interact with participants in an effective way. Um, I think that's critical. I think taking the time to listen early on, to listen to your partners, to listen to stakeholders, um, and to listen to the communities before anything has even started, to make sure that community leaders are bought into the process, that folks who are living in the community um, understand why you're there and what you're doing, what you're hoping to achieve, um, and that everybody comes together to say, yes, this is something that's useful to us and that we want to do. Um, and then I think it comes down to also, as, as Danielle mentioned before, the types of methods that we that we choose. And are we choosing a, a combination of methods that will allow for the voices of, of folks to be heard and to be represented? Um, and so I'm a big fan of mixed methods research. So I think it is important to have that quantitative data. Uh, but when you're able to pair that with really the voices, the experiences, the rich insights from the people who know the most about the situation, I think that's really, really powerful. Um, and I think as much as possible, really having a collaborative analysis process, bringing the results back um, for interpretation with your partners, um, whether that's the National Ministry of Health um, or whether it's National Malaria Control Program and bringing those, that information back to communities. And I think one thing that we do well at the Johns Hopkins Center for Communication Programs is really working with those different stakeholders and making sure that the information we're collecting isn't just for our purposes. It's not because we want to publish a paper. It's because we really want to improve malaria programs. We want to improve malaria policy and really making sure that that information is being translated into better malaria programs and in turn, hopefully protecting people better. Thank you, April. These are really kind of uh, good points. I think it shows, um, at least for me, in terms of how I understand it, a lot of like reflection uh, in terms of uh, researchers and what it is that we do. Um, not just in terms of mapping the relevant kind of stakeholders from the national level all the way to the community level, but then also in terms of participation, like who participates, how they participate, and the level of participation, right? Um, in terms of now how you apply it, I think it's very important in terms of the complementarity uh, of the methods, like you said, because they always feed into each other and expand the kind of uh, evidence that we can uh, produce. And of course, in terms of the community's buy-in, but also the sustainability and uh, giving feedback uh, back to the communities. And I think this, yeah, it, it, it's a point that most of sometimes um, it kind of pushes, it's pushed out in terms of uh, giving uh, recommendations or going back to give feedback in terms of the findings of your research. Um, another point or question that I want to ask, uh, or maybe just a reflection on both your parts in terms of your experience would come, uh, how do you see the relevance of 
uh, applying community engagement sort of strategies in your work and in terms of the practical outcome of the research itself. Because most of the time, I think this is evidence that um, that is usually not kind of produced, especially if you work uh, in, let's say, trials, for instance, where in the focus more is on certain kind of aspects and approaches. And then this uh, evidence that you've seen in terms of the outcome of community buy-in or engagement, etc., doesn't really come out. So in terms of your work, is this something that you've been able to produce or, um, yeah, if there are challenges with this, uh, what could you want to say on it? Uh, April? Sure. Yes. And, and maybe I can speak a little bit more broadly about um, what we do at CCP and and what we hope to do. And um, our work focuses a lot on social and behavior change. And we know that that happens when we have a really clear understanding of the determinants of behavior. So what is it that drives uh, what people do, as well as the con- the contextual factors that might influence people's behavior. And so what we really try to do is to have a very clear understanding of those factors. Um, and that can come both from large-scale surveys, such as the Malaria Behavior Survey, which CCP has implemented or is planning to implement in, in 10 countries to really provide some national level data as well as regional level data on, you know, what's driving some of these key malaria behaviors, um, as well as really listening to people and expanding on some of that information with some of these more empathetic methods that Danielle and I have discussed. Um, but the next and really critical aspect of that is taking that information and turning it into effective social and behavior change interventions. So it doesn't stop with collecting information. It doesn't stop with um, engaging communities. That community engagement is going to continue into the programmatic application of this as well, into implementation, um, and really making sure that people affected by malaria are involved in decision-making, that we have evidence-based programs that involve stakeholders at all levels. Um, So I I think it's really a full process. Um, And what I think is exciting, too, is I I would view community engagement or participation as really a spectrum or a continuum. Um, And I think it's incumbent on all of us to start pushing it further in the direction toward what Danielle was describing around co-creation and really um, not just, you know, as we've said, making sure our voices are reflected, but how do we really engage communities as true partners in the process? Um, and I think that is really the direction that we are going and that, that we should be going in this space. And Danielle, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I would just, you know, April put it so perfectly and I have very little to add, but I, one thing I do want to emphasize is this this concept of community engagement not being static. I think sometimes when we think about research and we think about program or intervention development, we think, okay, one thing on our checklist is going to be engage community. All right, all right, we engage community, check. But that's really not what, you know, that's important. Yes, everyone should should have that on their checklist, but it shouldn't just appear once. Right. That should be something that we continuously are doing in our project, our research, our intervent, our, in our intervention cycles. We should be engaging community at the beginning and the middle. And there really should be no end. Right. If we're thinking about when we're implementing projects, implementing interventions, that initial implementation. Great. 
but let's continue to see how that project or that intervention behaves or how it works over time and continue to get that community engagement, get their feedback and iterate on those projects and interventions over time. So we make sure that they're continuously responding to the needs of the communities that they're intended to serve. Good points. And Beer, you can just um, chip in if you want to ask any questions. Uh, but I think it's, yeah, the next question I will ask, because I think, yeah, it's, it, the point is made very much of the relevance of community engagement. So I just want to pose this question to you, both in terms of the work that you've done. What do you think are the challenges of actually doing this? And have you encountered, let's say, for instance, uh, challenges required, uh, pertaining to ethics in, in, in your work? Yeah. Uh, April? Yeah, that's an important question. And I think from my perspective, um, of course, there will be challenges. Um, but I think the challenges that we'll encounter if we fail to do this appropriately are going to be much greater. Um, so it's really critical to put in the time and to put in the thought um, and as Danielle said, to, to really do this on an ongoing basis, um, because we'll be preventing much larger challenges in the future when you implement an expensive program or intervention that really doesn't have the impact that you want. Um, but you raised the, the questions of ethics. And I, I think that when we think about our work, community engagement involving communities as partners, I think is the, the ethical approach. And I think, of course, from the research perspective, we, we think about this a lot in terms of making sure that we've thought through all of the ethical considerations before we start. But it's really by involving communities in your work that informed consent can be given, that people can truly consent to the process is, is by understanding what you're doing by having a shared vision of what you're trying to accomplish. Um, so I think these things go hand in hand. Um, I can mention maybe what could have been a challenge, but that was overcome because we had uh, some of the things in place that we discussed earlier. And that was one of the methods that we've used to better understand when and where people might be at risk is, is nighttime observation. Because as we know, malaria mosquitoes bite at night. and you hear a lot from people like people actually let other people watch them at night. Like, and I would have the same question. That's kind of a strange thing to do and maybe a little bit creepy, right? So you, you get questions like that. But the reason I think that we have been able to really get that, that information and to get some additional information that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to capture, like the fact that people spend part of the night outside and then move inside in some contexts, um, is because of that community engagement process. It's because we brought people together to have conversations about what we were doing and why, um, made sure people had the opportunity to, to ask, ask questions, that our research team was comprised of people who really understood the communities that we were working in, um, how to approach community leaders respectfully and participants respectfully. Um, and so we've actually been able to successfully use that approach in a few different contexts along with other methods. Um, and we've been responsive to what households are asking for. In, in one context, when we were working in Zanzibar, we had several households that requested to have a female data collector 
um, mm. because they didn't feel comfortable having a male data, data collector in their house overnight. And of course, we were willing to respond to that. And it was from listening, from having those conversations, from having the right people having those conversations that we were able mm. to learn what people's concerns are and to be responsive to that. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's fair. That's very insightful. Um, I think, yeah, to having a good knowledge of where you are working in and the involvement of people who are also from that kind of setting, I think all of these things kind of help you to be able to address the challenges that you face because, I mean, it's impossible not to face any sort of challenges here, but it's more like, yeah, how do you anticipate it and how do you address it as well? Um, Daniel, um, are there certain challenges that you faced in the work and, yeah, how did you kind of address these? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, and before I, I jump into those challenges, I do want to add on to something that April said with regard to ethical research. And one thing that I, I believe is really key to ethical research and intervention design and implementation is this empathy component, right? And, and April spoke to this um, a little bit earlier, but really having a comprehensive understanding of the key stakeholders who are going to be involved in your research or intervention development and implementation prior to it even beginning, right? Because we want to make sure that we're designing in a way, we're designing our research study or we're designing our, our, our intervention development in a way that best suits the target audience. We, we need to know that it's not a one-size-fits-all. Right. So taking that step to really get a comprehensive understanding of the folks involved in an empathetic way is really critical. I really believe it's critical to, to ethical research and, and intervention design. And then kind of along the same lines, you know, I, I you know, you hear me talk, it's like empathy, 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 but that, that's how that's how it is in my world. <laughs> but, you know, also really thinking about some of the biggest challenges. I would say probably the main challenge in, in this type of an approach is designing your research to accommodate the schedules and the needs of your target audiences. Knowing that those folks are critical to reach. What that means though is that you need to be a little bit more flexible, right? On your end with your project design, with your timeline and know that what you want has to take a backseat, right? You need to really kind of turn the process on its head, the process that we've all, you know, been a part of for, for, for a long time in this field of, you know, you write a proposal and you have a timeline and you have your deliverables um, and really realizing that that is important, but that needs to be secondary to the audiences that we're designing for and adjusting those things as much as you can Right, adjusting those things to accommodate those target audiences, those key, you know, those related key stakeholders. So building in that flexibility is extremely important and ultimately will lead you to ideas, solutions, research that is, is better informed by all of those key stakeholders. So I can't emphasize that enough. Let's, let's, let's kind of turn this all on its head. Let's take our research timelines and get, and, you know, have those take a backseat and really hear from our end users and our target audiences and design accordingly. Yeah, that's, that's definitely great. And it, it, like, it fits in really well with the 
next question that we had, which is like, if you had an advice, uh, if you would be advising, let's say, a new researcher who wants to use similar kind of methods, uh, in terms of their work, yeah, what would you tell them? I think, yeah, this idea of being really flexible to adjust to the needs of your uh, targeted communities and participants, it, it's very much key. Um, and also, yeah, just know that a lot of things also um, you can control, but a lot of other things that you cannot, but it's just having those measures in place to be able to address it. So if there are other things that if you had for instance, a student that is ready to go out and do some research uh, April, what are, let's say, some of uh, advices that you will give them? I mean, I, I think the biggest one is is maybe something that we've already touched on, which is just taking the time to listen um, and not assuming that we have the answers. Uh, one thing we, we talk about with some of the research methods that we use on the qualitative side is that person that you're talking to is the expert in that subject. They're the ones who know the most about it. Um, and it's, it's taking that time to really listen from the beginning before you, before you jump into what you think the right research approach is, but before you jump into what you think the solution is. Um, and I think, um, in Danielle's work with design thinking as well, it's really important to encourage people to not jump to solutions, right? It's really taking that time to understand the context first. Mm. Um, so I, I think that would be my biggest advice. And uh, Daniel, just also trying to see a little bit when you talked about this not being a one-side-fits-all approach, um, if you can just elaborate a little bit, because I think at least in terms of my experience, I see that there's a lot of heterogeneity and variability in terms of what it is that we see in actual the field. And it's very difficult to say that you can apply this type of approach standardized across different kind of settings here. Yeah. So if you would just want to uh, touch on that a little bit more. Yeah, thanks for the question. I think, you know, oftentimes folks come in, researchers come in with their playbook of um, you know, research methods. I, I'm a specialist in XYZ research method. And how often, and I've done this too, have folks said, all right, I've done this in X country in this context. Here's my research tool. Here it is. I'm going to take it. I'm going to copy and paste it and use it in a different context, in, you know, for something completely different. And if we're being completely true to an empathetic research approach, that's ethical and that's tailored to our audience and the area in which we're working, that's not the way to do it, right? You can, you know, it's really, yes, I did this in one context. Yes, I think it can work in another. But before I, I copy and paste, let me take some time to really learn about that context, learn about the people in, in that in that new area where I'm doing research and modify my tools and modify my plan accordingly to make sure that that it, it best suits that specific context because it really is not what what not one size fits all when it comes to this. I'll also find that you know April and I are champions of empathetic research. This is what we do. We believe in it. And I find that when either of us talk about this, we get a lot of folks who who are like, yeah, that makes complete sense. But then it ends there. Right. So my biggest recommendation would be if this sounds interesting to you try it just 
you know, take that additional step and try it. Yes, it takes a, t- it takes some time. Um, and it's often a, a bit of a switch of a mindset, but just do it. Um, and I would say, what, you know, if you're feeling like, yes, this is something I want to try. Okay. I'm ready to do it. Spend a little bit of time just looking around, um, learning about these different empathetic research approaches. If design thinking or human centered design are interested or interesting to you, spend some time researching the approaches, get a good understanding of what they are. And that's going to help build your confidence in, in applying things like this. But again, Number one recommendation for folks who are interested, just do it. I promise you, <laughs> you, you will, you will see the benefits. And maybe just to add on to, to what Danielle is saying, like, absolutely. I think it's, it's critical just to get started, right? Um, but I would also encourage people to bring in folks or to have conversations with folks who have done it before, right? And to learn from people who have done it before. Um, and I, I see this sometimes too with, with, for example, qualitative research methods where people think, oh, it's, it's really easy to do. I'm just going to do it. Um, yeah. but then you get pretty low quality outputs. And so I think yeah. it's really important, as Danielle said, to put in that time to really learn about the approaches, to learn about the methods, to know how to do them well so that you really get that rich, useful data. And I think a lot of people are really willing to to help for, for example, for students who are interested in getting started or learning more about it. There, there are a lot of folks who are willing to help. Um, so really taking the time to learn and taking the time to, to really learn from people who are using some of these approaches effectively. I love that, April. I, you know, I think what's so great about some of these qualitative research methods um, is that they, they are very accessible to folks. They seem very accessible. Um, but in actuality, there's some extremely important nuances that are critical for them to be successful. And really, those can only be mastered through research, through practice, through those discussions with experts in the field. So I think that's a really, really important and critical point. Yeah, true. Very true. Uh, Beer, do you want to jump in and ask uh, kind of like the closing questions that we may have? Sure. So yeah, I think this has been such an inspiring discussion, especially for me as a PhD student sort of embarking on my first big research project. It's really, really great to hear from both of you. Um, and yeah, a lot of food for thought in what you're, in the things that you've been saying. Um, so I guess the final question, um, just to say, what do you see as the opportunities for improving engagement with communities in vector-borne disease research? And you can keep this as a brief one. Um, as we're coming up to time, but yeah, any thoughts on that? Uh, yes, April. Sure. Um, I think as, as we said before, do it early and often. And as Danielle said, um, it's not a, a check the box kind of situation. It's an ongoing, um, movement. And I think moving more on that continuum toward true partnership and, and co-creation, I think is a really critical next step. And, you know, what I'm most excited about is, is what Danielle and I have, have talked about together multiple times is really how do we really integrate social and behavioral sciences with the design thinking process? And I think that's a really, uh, exciting opportunity. So thinking about using this really creative, iterative process that fully engages end users 
and then rigorously evaluating those solutions once they're finalized or once they're pilot tested, right? And how do we bring together these different types of methodologies and the research lens with this really important and useful process that that Danielle does so well? So um, I'm I'm most excited about that moving forward. That's great. Yeah, that really helps situate in the bigger picture of what this research is all about. So thank you for that. Uh, Danielle, any final remarks on opportunities for improving engagement in vector-borne disease research? Yeah, I mean, first of all, ditto to everything April. Equally excited. So many great opportunities for this type of work. Um, and I really think, you know, the landscape of malaria prevention and treatment is continuously changing. And these types of approaches we talked about today and the importance of community engagement really provides this flexible approach for engaging, you know, target audiences and key stakeholders. And what I love about that is by doing this, they can be the communities that we're working with, the communities that we're serving can really be those agents of change and to come up with those innovative interventions or solutions that that I really think can make a big difference in this field. That's great. Thank you so much. So yeah, I think sort of takeaways I'm taking for this is um, empathy and how center stage empathy should be in these research processes. Um, that flexibility in design and research process, I think is another really key one to take away. Um, and yeah, sort of making sure that all you know, stakeholders and members of the communities are engaged early on and everybody agrees on the usefulness of the research that's being done. Um, so yeah, thank you so much both for joining us today. It's been a really, really interesting and insightful discussion. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and keep up the great work to get these messages out. Yeah, thank you. Same here. We're happy to have you go join us. I'm looking forward to future collaborations.